while we were living in Mongolia a number of years ago, my friend and I were driving a van that he had um, fixed. He's quite a handy guy, and he'd replaced um, the wheel shaft that connects the wheels. And to our surprise, I still remember his face. While we were driving along the road, there was a little bump, and then we saw one of our own wheels overtaking us. <laughs> yes, we looked at each other. That was one of our wheels. It was fair to say that when Paul was writing this letter in about AD 57, Israel's wheels had fallen off as a nation. Uh, it was so bad, Jesus warned about the temple, not one stone will be left upon another. Complete destruction of the temple. After all, God had for centuries been spurned, rejected by Israel. The prophets compare Israel, his bride, to an active, unashamed prostitute. How's the marriage going to go? But even still, even still, God loves her, his nation. He won't reject Israel altogether. The people who dared to kill his own son. What does God's treatment of Israel say then about God? This is not only an academic question. No, our conviction about God's character will explain how we live our lives. We live out our theology, whatever our theology is, good or bad, our understanding of God. Should you, can you, do you trust him with your life and why? If you or someone you support is constantly rattled by life and throwing God's goodness into question, these chapters of Romans, including chapter 11, are vital. Why did the bus have to crash? Such a terrible event. Why the invasion of one country into another? Why are God's ethics so different from our world's? Why the relapse is my health when I was getting better? Why sickness, suffering, death? Why is this his lot or her lot? Why is it my lot? How could this be a good plan from a good God? Bringing all these questions together, we can come to a bigger question. Do we have reason enough to trust him? Do we have reason enough to trust him? And look with me firstly at God's grace, his kindness towards Israel. Point one, if you're following in the outlines, Israel and God is a relationship over, verses 1 to 10. In light of Israel being, as we saw at the end of chapter 10, verse 21, then being persistently disobedient and obstinate. Now in chapter 11, verse 1, the apostle Paul writes, I ask then, did God reject his people? Although God has every right to do that, Paul says forcefully, because it matters, God forbid, by no means, absolutely not. It seems to matter. Why? How does God, uh, how does Paul make his point? In two, two things he says. Firstly, Paul has a thumb pointing at himself. Besides the thousands of other Jews we saw come to Christ in the book of Acts as the church began, Paul himself is proof that not all Israelites are rejected. Verse 1, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. But secondly, God's true people have never been the whole nation, but those he has chosen from within Israel. A true Israel, a spiritual Israel within a larger core, a larger group of ethnic Israel. The saved have always been a portion, a remnant, a smaller part, typically from within national Israel, though occasionally people come into that spiritual core as well, like 
Rahab or Ruth. In the end, um, Paul says in verse 2, God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. Those God chose were always his people from within national Israel. You can imagine two circles, a larger one, that's national Israel, and a smaller one inside, they're his true Israel. And to be efficient with his argument, Paul gives three classic examples from Israel's biggest hitters, Elijah, Moses, and then King David. First, in Elijah's day, the two Israels live side by side. Verse 2, don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he, a great Israelite, appealed to God against Israel. Almost like a civil war is going on. And God's nation against God's prophet. Or verse 3, Lord, they, the Israelites, have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left. And they, the fellow Israelites, are trying to kill me. It's Israel against Israel's prophet. That should never be, but it was. God has never chosen all of Israel, and he never intends to reject all of Israel. And the same is happening in the church age, says Paul in verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is still a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. It's always been grace. It's not as though it shifts from works in the Old Testament to grace in the New. It's always been God graciously chooses his people. Now, sometimes you meet um, Jewish Christians, although they don't stand out um, necessarily, but ethnic Jews who have been chosen by God's grace, as we see in verse 6, chosen by grace to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and Lord they were previously waiting for. Uh, they tend not to receive a whole lot of tension, in my experience at least. Um, they, my friends have stayed in touch with their Jewish family. They remain Jews by heritage. They also, however, integrate with a new Christian family. Uh, one of my Christian Jewish friends came to Christ, still an ethnic Jew, but is now the Christian wife of a Presbyterian minister. Many wouldn't know that she was a Jew. That's Elijah's story that some, not all, Israel were truly God's people. What is happening today with my friend has been happening through the church age and even before that into the Old Testament. Moses was similar. So we've seen Elijah. Now Moses, verse 7, when he speaks of the elect among them being saved. The rest of the Israelites, we take it, like Pharaoh before him, were hardened as God's form of judgment. What about King David then? Thirdly, same thing, verses 9 to 10. And Paul's point is that Jewish rejection of God is hardly a new thing. Yes, the spiritual reality became clearer as God drew nearer. Uh, When God the Son enters into community, things become clear. Will you follow me or not? Are you mine or not? Jesus had a polarizing effect on the Jews. The minority of the Jews who were chosen to love God, loved Jesus when he arrived. In short, just because God was saving a multitude of people now from all nations doesn't mean he was suddenly now rejecting Israel altogether. By no means, Paul wants to make that clear. Point two, then, we see of God's character. His character means he remains faithful to unfaithful Israel, verses 11 to 24. So he asks a question to start. Again, I ask, Did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Are they a lost cause? Not at all. 
Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. So God has a good end in mind even in this. Once again, God is working for the good of Jews while blessing Gentiles, those who are not Jews. Uh, Like God's use of evil for good in Joseph's story back in Genesis, if you're familiar with that. I think D.Y. have been looking at that uh, together. In Acts as well, we see God working through the evil of a crucifixion and widespread Jewish persecution. He uses that for good as well. God uses that to spread the gospel to Gentiles and to let other Jews look on and see what's happening. And Paul mentions the word envy being a force that was at play with Jews watching God's spirit work among Gentiles. Who knows how much God has used that over the centuries. The God so committed to Abraham that he holds on to Israel is the God also who has given his word to you and to me. No condemnation, he says. Nothing will separate you from God's love forever, he says. When I was young, I used to watch a show called MacGyver in the 1980s. I think there's a new series that I haven't seen. But he was a really clever hero. He's the kind of guy who he gets stuck on a deserted island and he'll use a coconut and his straw hat to make a satellite phone to, to call for help. And as a boy, I always thought, how can I be like that? God's history with Israel, his character, his track record is to use even the worst materials, the worst circumstances, yes, even cruelty and sickness, death, to work for the good of those who love him. We might not know how or why God is at work through what we're going through, but we do know his character, his promises, and we see how kindly he deals with Israel. He takes all kinds of trash through history and he consistently turns it into treasure for his people. Jews and Gentiles together called for the nails. God readied his hands to receive them for the good he wanted to do to bless those persecuting him. But if Israel's trash, their transgression, verses 11 to 12, their envy, verse 11, their loss, verse 12, were used by God to bless How much more blessing can we expect when Israel are on the rails, not off the rails, when they accept their Messiah, not reject him? Paul expresses this in verses 12 to 16. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? And he asks a similar question in verse 15. Paul expects riches and blessing and fruit to come from Jews who come to Christ. What are the riches? He calls them out. Verse 14, that some will be saved. Verse 15, there'll be life from the dead. Verse 16, Jews will take on their Messiah's holiness like they never could before. Huge blessings, spiritual riches that we as Christ's people in church take for granted. Now, it could have been in Paul's day, in the Roman churches, some people were starting to despise the Jews and even mock the way they treated God and missed out. Is it okay for Christians to take a flight to Jerusalem in our own day and and rub this sad history in anyone's faces? I'm sure it has been done, but it should, of course, never be done. What would Paul say? Well, he addresses Gentiles 
directly from verse 13. And he wants to say, be humble about Israel's fall. Why is that? One reason is that the Jews in their unsaved state are from a human point of view much closer to the Messiah and God's salvation than anyone else from other cultural backgrounds. As Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews. They're close. They're so close. Can a Jew become a Christian? Of course. Salvation and Christianity stem from, owe themselves to the foundation of Judaism. God's tree, verse 17, and the next analogy he uses, is God's people. And those promises to Father Abraham are still the root of Christian blessing from which the tree grows today. And so there's a, there's a great thing that we can realize that radiating from Christ's disciples is the praise for Abraham's God. Radiating from Christ's disciples today is praise for Abraham's God. You will say then, verse 19, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. To truly know Israel's history is to be proud, uh, to be humble, not proud. To be circumspect and sober. To observe those who call themselves God's people, failing to be so. We mustn't be so smug as to think history can't or won't repeat itself. What was the blight? What was the disease, the rot within the hearts of Israel? It may not seem so bad to us, but it should. It's the little word in verse 20, unbelief. And the opposite is also in the same verse, standing by faith. They seem to be the alternatives. In our day, friends, unless we're very deliberate about this, conscious of this, unless we develop a clear head about this, we will only stand by faith, we will only trust God's word if it doesn't clash with our cultural values. It doesn't clash with our sense of how God should be in our opinion. It doesn't clash with the latest research or statistics, human certainties. It doesn't include suffering. It doesn't take us where we don't want to go. It doesn't ask us to sacrifice what we love. There are myriad ways in which we can choose faithless common sense, faithless satisfaction of desires, faithless preferences over what it would mean to actually trust the Lord Jesus in what he teaches and how he would have his disciples live. Friends, beware toxic unbelief, even within the safety of a Christian church. If we're living just like our neighbours, we can be sure unbelief is the cause If we think of Christendom, the Christian world, a so-called Christian nation or society throughout history, if we think of denominations of great but now secular church schools and the countless empty church buildings that once had hearts filled for love of Christ, hearts that saw these entities built in the first place and blessed, then we too can be more humble. Christian institutions or societies built on substantial Christian foundations can crumble in exactly the same way that Israel did. So how do we respond to that possibility? Verse 22, we're not to blame society as the church. Rather, the church is to get on being the church. 
we come back to, we remember, we recognize, we, verse 22, consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness of those who fell. God's judgment is not pretty. We mustn't think we can play with God in any generation. But consider also, he says, God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. Now, we know from the earlier chapters of Romans that Paul is not saying Christians can lose our salvation. Those chosen are those who are called, justified, glorified. But it is a warning against Christian pride and presumption. After going astray last century, a huge two-thirds of the Presbyterian Church's assets went to the Uniting Church. Some of the big schools, um, aged care, lots of different entities. The Presbyterians' motto at the time, after 1977 when this happened, was humbled but hopeful. Humbled but hopeful. We strayed from the Bible, but we know God is merciful and he can rebuild When we lose faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, we lose our way altogether. In Lura, there's a a great little Presbyterian church building on the main street. Uh, You can get good pizza, chocolate, ice cream, woolen jumper, but you won't get the gospel anymore. It's no longer functioning as a church. Uniting Anglican, Presbyterian, Baptist churches... Tell me what you make of the Lord Jesus and you're telling me how healthy you are. We need to watch out as denominations for politics, greed, scepticism, strategies that display unbelief. Instead, to be standing by faith. Many families I went to church with, it's great, younger people are growing up with other Christian families, it's wonderful. One sad thing in my life has been to see some of those families who were in church found reasons to be out of it. If you're not sure where you stand today, you're coming to church, but you're not sure where you stand, it's great that you're here. But can I say, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, it's like you're looking into the warm building from outside. Come inside, call on God's mercy. Put away unbelief and stand by faith. And let us all, verse 22, consider his sternness and kindness, continue in his kindness. Not accidentally, why would we do that? But very deliberately and with all our hearts as a church. There are organizations like Jews for Jesus who, you can visit their website, jewsforjesus.org. And they have a great focus on reaching fellow Jews with the news that the Messiah is Jesus. He's come, we need to wait no longer. May God bring ethnic Jews into your circles as well. And may we be ready to share our love for the Messiah with them. Thirdly, Christian Jews will be among the saved, verses 25 to 32. In this next section, Paul zooms out to see the big picture of God's saving story. Now, I think this text is a difficult one, and it's one I think that's wrongly understood, usually, often. And I say that humbly, I'm also seeking to rightly understand it. It's often understood to mean that there will be a big turning of Jews towards Jesus in the last days, and that will be necessary for Jesus to return. Now, that might happen, God could do that, but I don't think that's what it's getting at. I used to read it that way myself. 
I think what it's saying, well, firstly, I'll, I'll just say what some organizations think. Some think Jesus won't return until this Jewish evangelism and large-scale conversion happens, and so there's a special push to save Jews so that Jesus can come back. Other Christians think all Jews will somehow be saved in the end, even though Paul clearly laments that's not true. Some think Jerusalem needs to be physically protected, the city today, because the Messiah's plans depend on it. So how do these people get different understandings? Let's look at the verses that are easy to misinterpret from verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of the mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until a full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he talks about a hardening in part. That's part of the tricky part in verse 25. I think Paul is saying is that the Jewish population was, Old Testament, was in Jesus' day, was in Paul's day, continues to be today, partially hardened, as he's just explained. So that partial hardening is something that continues, not absolute hardening, so that some Jews will continue to be among the saved. So it's not talking about time, I think it's talking about proportion, partial hardening. What about verse 26 then? I take it it means Jews join Gentiles coming into salvation together as one. Verse 26, in this way all Israel will be saved. In light of all that Paul's explained in verses 29 to 32, which says we all need the same rescue boat, Jews and Gentiles, from disobedience, all Israel here can only refer, I think, to the new Israel, not the old nation again, and God goes back to period one of history. No, it's Abraham's one true vine, the true Israel he's speaking of, made up of Jewish and Gentile branches in the analogy he just gave. God's promise to Abraham, which is our Bible passage next week, we're going to have a week on Genesis 12, so we can go back to that promise and look at it, was that through your seed, your offspring, all nations on earth would be blessed. And that is what God is doing, and that is what he has done. He didn't say Jews or Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles will be blessed through Israel's line. So friends, God's track record, as we saw in the kids' talk, makes him absolutely trustworthy in the fog and the darkness of our own circumstances. When I was training to be a pilot, it was very important to learn to use the instruments early. And they said, when you don't have visual cues of where you are, perhaps the sun's not visible, perhaps you're in the cloud, you don't even know sometimes which way's up. Like you might be being tossed in the surf, you don't know which way's up. Learn to trust the instruments. So too, we learn to trust God's word, especially in the worst conditions, when the instruments, the reliability of him is most needed. And so lastly, the glory due to Israel's God. I don't know when the last time was you got choked up with emotion, but for many, um, at the end of COVID, there was a lot of emotions in the air. People stuck overseas or interstate, allowed to meet their families again, parents seeing their own children, sometimes couples separated. 
when my son, little Jack, had his arm bent as, as a break, I was so grateful to the Ambos and the doctors who brought peace and healing into our pain and chaos. If only we could enter into the vision of Paul that floods him with gratitude, things that are too big for him to express, choked up with emotion and wonder and adoration. Perhaps you just get a sense of it this morning. God's glory, God's power, goodness, leaves him lost for words. May at least, may it at least have a little effect on us as we go, but an increasing effect as we age and mature as Christians. What a creator we have. What a judge. What a savior. That God would think and then act and achieve to bring Israel onto the world stage in order to save the whole world through them. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His wisdom and knowledge are so far beyond our pay grade. And yet we think we should be able to work God out and why he's doing what he's doing all the time. If you feel you need to get God more than you need to praise him, if you feel you have to agree with all God does in order to trust him, then you've got no idea the wisdom and knowledge gap you're trying to faithlessly bridge. See verse 33, doesn't say how searchable his judgments, how unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? He doesn't owe us anything. Friends, I believe a lot of us are busy. Busy isn't bad. But with the same number of hours in your week as everyone else, don't be too busy to love and trust God as the primary purpose of your existence. Because all of Scripture shows us, verse 36, that for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Last week I was looking to buy something online. The seller had about 40 reviews and he only had a two-star rating out of five. And I read some of the comments and it wasn't looking good. And so I thought to myself, hmm, I think I'll learn from the bad experiences of others and give this seller a miss. Paul is showing us this morning that God's track record, God's rating is off the charts. Generations come, generations go. But when God gives his word... The wise bet their life on it. Let's pray.